0: You're listening to the Frankly Podcast. To submit a question to the podcast, go to franklypodcast.co.nz. This episode is kindly supported by the fabulous woman at Bonkaloo. I'm Jen, and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19 years old and have had a generalized anxiety disorder since I was a little kid. I've lost friends, jobs, and opportunities because of the stigma attached to that mental illness. But I still choose to share it with you because my diagnosis is not my whole identity, and the way to combat discrimination is to normalise and educate people. And you are, <laughs> yeah, well ora, um, My name is
1: Chloe Swarbrick. I. Nowadays I am the MP for Auckland Central. I'm a Green a member of Parliament and this is my second term. Uh, I am uh, 27 years old. I use the pronoun she, her. Uh, I, was a high school dropout technically and was diagnosed with depression uh, several years ago which is something that I now with the privilege of my position have the opportunity to work through with a therapist which has been um, massively beneficial.
0: That's fantastic (laughs) yeah (laughs) I started getting treated at 19 and like got on it super early but only because I kind of had to because I couldn't leave the house and I was going to uni and I just found myself not being able to leave the house. Um, So I went to my doctor, Um, my GP that I'd had since I was born. And she was just like, um, she asked me a bunch of questions. uh, And then she kind of said, yeah, it sounds like you're really depressed. So we will get you onto counselling. I had not a lot of money at the time. So she managed to get me a thing through WINS uh, where I got counselling for, I think it was five, maybe it was more um, sessions which was so important to mm. my recovery. But I did go on to do um, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, for like nine years because it turned out I had bipolar and things were a little more tricky than, and a little more messy than we first thought. So, yeah, that's cool. That's amazing that you managed to like get some help and like got onto it because it's really hard to do. Yeah. Well, it's also definitely something that, um,
1: and I'm not sure how, uh, so please guide me if this is getting too far down any particular track, but um, I've been pretty open about how as a teenager I engaged in some pretty destructive behaviours as a way to, for lack of a better term, kind of mask um, or uh, just get away from how I was feeling, um, which I guess is why I now have a sense of empathy when it comes to uh, a better approach that we can take to alcohol and drug harm reduction. Um, I, in particular, found myself um, consuming excessive alcohol, which was massively dangerous. Um, not in a way that I was necessarily addicted, uh, that meant that I was compulsively using it, but in a way that when I did use it, I used it to excess, because there wasn't really that barometer of what it was to um, just be in a nice place. <laughs> it was kind of quite, yeah. quite a self-destructive, um, down the rabbit hole um, kind of a, a want or a, or a sense of feeling. So. Um, I I feel really, again, privileged to have gotten into the position that I am now and to be able to talk about those things because I think that there's a way that the story is told about how people are supposed to get into these roles and how Mm -hmm. perfect you're supposed to be and all of that is absolute garbage.
0: Yeah, there's a certain look and there's a certain way to talk and I mean when I was growing up all MPs looked the same, most of them were white men. I was lucky to see mm-hmm. Helen We've Clark. We've still got commentary. quite a few of them. Yes, yes there's a few. <laughs> <laughs> They're everywhere. We were just, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't think we, I don't think I started seeing any. Helen Clark was the first kind of, and I, actually she wasn't the first woman that I noticed, but she was the one that, because I was brought up in a very highly liberal feminist <laughs> crew, family. So, um, yeah, she was like the biggest role model to me and that seeing a strong woman, but the way that she was spoken about in the media was so mm. disgusting. And I'm really glad that my mother, like used to tell me that, like she used to kind of mirror it and say, like critique it essentially, and just say, mm. this is not being, you know, the the men, male MPs are not being spoken about in this way. And a lot of them aren't pretty pictures. You shouldn't have to be to, to do some good in the world. You shouldn't well,
1: have I don't. To be. Yeah.
0: It's also just not representative, right? and
1: we're seeing a really similar uh, narrative play out when it comes to race in particular in the spotlight right now, you know, yeah. the way that yeah. our Māori MPs are treated. And, you know, I don't think that James or Marama, um our two Green co-leaders, you know, mm-hmm. James as Pākehā dude and Marama as a Māori woman, um, would be at all um, surprised or unhappy with me sharing the fact that you know, it is often the case that when James gets a fact or a stat wrong, as is a fact of life. Yeah, um, we're human beings. Yeah, there, <laughs> there is a level of um, sympathy and forgiveness and he can correct it. Uh, when Martimer gets a fact or a stat wrong, uh, there is then almost this like hounding process of she doesn't know what she's talking about in the sense that there's a need to undermine her in the mm. mainstream yeah. kind of stories that end up playing out and I just am constantly reminded that it feels as though when you don't necessarily occupy the demographics or the characteristics that uh, the way that that stereotype of somebody in this role is supposed to look, then you're held to higher standards. You have to prove yourself in a way that other people who are assumed to be fit for this role do not because of how they look. Um, and that, that, you know, plays out in not just those, those really deeply negative ways, but it also then means that people are massively underestimated and hugely patronized. And um, yeah, it's, it's deeply unfortunate. But I hope that with greater visibility and representation that these things are slowly changing. But one of the many things that I try and unpack when I'm, you know, talking to particularly younger people and particularly the climate strike movement uh, is that we can you know, operate from inside the system as much as we want. And that is also a really important part of trying to drive change. But I think we often forget the cultural elements and culture from a design thinking perspective. Uh, so not you know, synonymous or interchangeable with people's cultural practices, but it's a shared set of values. And when you think about culture in that manifestation or that way or with that definition, then you end up understanding how we can have society or communities that are hugely diverse, but that share these values, which in turn means that there is a sense of cohesion and ability to collaborate. And when you think about changing those unspoken values or challenging them or prioritizing certain ones or bringing them to the fore, or putting them in the spotlight, then you create an environment that's conducive to or i um, able to, you know, precipitate. I'm trying to come up with the more easy to <laughs> word, understand words because I'm yeah, also okay. really aware that, Yeah, politics is really entrenched and um, like uh, politics often uses all of these really fancy words to, yeah. to describe things and that is a way of actually putting up barriers to people engaging and being accessible and you know, I, I've made the point the other day actually on Twitter, the fact that uh, we so often are far more concerned with jargon than we are with justice, and that's part of the problem. But anyway, when people come together um, and we culturally decide that our values are XYZ, i.e. today we're having the it all on the back of the nurses striking for better paying conditions and yeah. we decide that's something that we value as a society and we reach a critical mass that is enough people are participating in that dialogue and prioritize that thing then our structures that is our, our laws and our financial system changes and shifts and is able to move in a way that reflects that culture so that, yeah. that tension is basically i think the rub of how we can change stuff and that doesn't mean that everybody has to become an mp to change things which is no. the key point i was trying to get across yeah yeah
0: no Absolutely, because protest is so important and it's this yeah. huge part of our history in Aotearoa of, of yeah. people deciding to get together and, and saying that they give a shit about something. They mm. really care about something enough to get out and like, you know, do what they need to do. That's really hard. I once like uh, organized an event um, for the March for Science because science is being attacked globally. Um, and... Getting people to to you know leave their you know their days on a Saturday is <laughs> really tricky. It's it's hard. So I think it's interesting because I have a 14-year-old and well, mm-hmm. almost 14-year-old. And the way that her generation is talking about things is very different. I think they've been brought up in a, a kind of in a world that's a little more. It's, it's far more intense than I remember it being yeah. when I was growing up. Um, there's a lot of media and a lot of quite negative stuff happening and some loss of hope from for people. But I really do get the sense that a lot of younger people are feeling like they want to do something. Like a lot of yeah. them are really angry. I've been to the climate yeah. marches for um, the strikes for cats. And um, yeah, the overall sense was very much anger and I kind of love that because that means they care like obviously there's a level there's a balance but (laughs) you don't want people like writing necessarily I mean Mm. that's a whole other topic (laughs) I could get into but the language of the unheard yeah (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and who should I mean who gets to tell people how to protest like Mm. the whole point of protest is that it doesn't really obey any of those rules you're going against that you're saying that there's something that's you know, uh, you, that you care enough about something that you're mm-hmm. willing to kind of do what it takes to get some mm-hmm. impact, to get some attention. And when you're a teenager, it's hard to get that. Because It's more to get that.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing that frustrates me the most about politics and particularly, you know, I often, as still the youngest MP in our parliament, I was elected when I just turned 23. I'm now, you know, nearly 27 at the end of this month. And I have had people constantly ask me, you know, how do we get the young people engaged? These are the same people who simultaneously will patronize young people for knowing nothing about politics. And then they'll patronize young people for not being engaged in politics. And how do you hold that cognitive dissonance in your head, you can't. You have to acknowledge, and you know, I can tell you for a fact, having door knocked up and down this country during campaigns over uh, both our central government elections and local government elections and by elections, that younger people do not have a monopoly on ignorance when it comes to the way that our political system works. And as much as they think that this conversation we're having around history in schools and civics education in schools is really important, um, I think that we need to be really careful of some of the assumptions that are laden into that, which is that younger people somehow don't know about this stuff and need to be educated in a way that older people somehow supposedly do know about yeah, this stuff. Exactly. Because I would really like to see more of our parliamentarians understanding more about New Zealand's history, because I think it would actually mean that we end up with far less of these unnecessary and often quite awful and antagonistic clashes. Um, which, yeah, really become, yeah, quite quite grotesque, and how not only they arguably, as some people would minimise and say they distract from the so-called things that matter, they also can what's called dog whistle, which is to say something in a way that doesn't, you know, all by itself necessarily seem all too bad, but in the minds of some people who have far more nefarious or dangerous ways of thinking about stuff, can signal to them that somebody inside of Parliament um, is thinking in, in that quite nasty way. Yeah.
0: So you know,
1: like when we talk about the racism uh, dialogue that's been playing out in Parliament over the past few months in particular, I can tell you for a fact that over the past three and a half years that I've been here, uh, that it only ever really flares up when we're talking about uh, kind of te and Māori wards and Māori seats and ways. but it has been gross over the past few weeks and that's That's a reflection of what our parliamentarians are saying is all good.
0: I'd like to say it's shocking but I'm not shocked it just feels like people feel more comfortable to say things I mean I live in Aotitahi which is like it's pretty white it's pretty conservative um has been the whole time I've been here um and unfortunately racism is pretty rife uh and I do get the sense that there's a lot of people who now feel more comfortable and whether that's coming from, you know, Trump, the Trump administration and, and, and I mean, not that it started with him, he's <laughs> mm. not the whole problem, but whether it started with, you know, all of that rhetoric that was coming through and it definitely affects us more now because we're <clears throat> so much more globalized. But you are talking about before that, um, like, you know, that that older people aren't necessarily any, you know, less ignorant than young people would be. Mm. I mean, and why is it like, necessarily? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not necessarily. That is cool. Yeah. We're not, I'm, it's generalizations. Where, yeah. But um, I was thinking what people, young people have today that, like, I, I had the internet. I'm 36. So I had, I had the internet when I was about 14, right? So that's when it kind of came on for me. And, it, but it wasn't this resource of, like, amazing information. It was, we still had encyclopedias. We <laughs> were mm. still, when you didn't know something, you'd go to the encyclopedia or you'd ask something, you know, an adult or something. And, and now, there's just this plethora of information, whether it be misinformation or, you know, accurate information or scientifically supported information. There's a lot of information. So, when you don't know something, you mm. can just I mean your phone is right there you can just ask whatever I mean it it has like stopped a bunch of arguments in my household (laughs) I'm like I'm pretty sure I'm right that that was that person in that movie you know that kind of thing but but in terms of like ignorance like it can be it can be really easy to group people and be incredibly ageist either way with young Mm. people or older people to, to kind of write them off um, mm. but I don't think that it's a good way for us to come together and I don't think it's a good way for us to understand each other better or even move forward because mm. like, like you're saying I mean laws take, can take a long time to change um, Yeah, and, and we need people to be talking to each other and more, more than that we need to be listening to everyone not just certain people and I, th- yeah. I do get the sense that we are starting to, not all of us, but we are starting to listen to more people. It does feel more diverse, at least than when I was growing up.
1: I, I think it worse. does. I, I think that that's definitely because we've been quite intentional about it, and that's yeah. the importance of the, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of affirmative action processes, but also being really aware of who has been marginalized Uh, and there's there's a number of different things to kind of unpack and you know what you just offered there one of them is that uh, the saturation of information that younger people have like my little brother's 14 And, uh, you know, I think about how for him, uh, like TikTok is a thing and uh, just being able to, as you say, Google anything to end an argument. But the thing about, you know, ending an argument via Google is almost always about can you identify a fact? Mm. And that's quite a different uh, point than a, a can you identify a perspective and can you offer a critique to that perspective or think about the perspective that's not being offered and how you perceive that fact. So this is where we move from a way of thinking about history for example of what are the things that we identify as important to teach because a million things happen every single day. But of course it is the case that we tell certain parts of, particularly if you're thinking about conflict, uh, you know, what certain uh, people were engaged in that conflict and then uh, how that conflict played out, what parts we do tell when we decide to, uh, what other parts we decide to sanitize and take out of that. And then the kind of narrative that we build around it for sake of telling a story and making it somewhat interesting so that people retain that information. And that's where we start to unpack, I think, some of those biases. Um, And that's where it is really important that, you know, when you walk around a place like, for example, our parliament, uh, the people who we have on our walls are representative of, you know, one arc of history uh, that is the colonial arc of history. But, you know, the, the people who are represented on these walls were evidently celebrated by virtue of that Arc and that perspective of history, but if you talk to other people who are around or have you know had their history passed down to them, particularly Thangathinna, uh, it's the case that some of the people who are celebrated on these walls aren't these perfect, amazing heroes that they're sometimes portrayed as. Yeah. And I think that that's the important stuff that we begin to unpack, particularly when we're talking about. know understanding different perspectives and how we can move forward uh because you talk about you know you're referring to how protest is a really important um kind of piece of our history in this country for driving things forward I also think that it's a really important part of our present and it's probably going to be really important in the future as well because protest is a way of facilitating you know people's push against a system that isn't working for them. And if you, again, look at all of the different perspectives and critiques and the flow of history, it's the case that there's this constant tension playing out basically in power and in relationships. And that's how I prefer to view politics. Because we think of politics as something that, you know, happens over there by people in suits who are arguing at each other in this wood-panelled chamber. Uh, but politics actually, you know, plays out in our day-to-day lives. It's not just political parties. It's not just parliament. It's not even just local government. It's how much your boss is paying you for your job. Exactly. It is. Uh, your rules at your school about the uniform that you're allowed to wear. It is whether your sidewalk is run down. It's whether you have affordable public transport in your neighbourhood. It's uh, all of those things that are to do with the rules that we accept and the rules that we want to push back against.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I'm glad I was taught, but I haven't come across a whole heap of people who understood that. I've heard a lot of people talk about politics and say, oh, I don't talk politics. I don't we don't talk about politics. Meaning they don't want to argue. My family argued all the time. It's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I enjoyed it, but yeah, not everyone would. But um but yeah, the idea that politics isn't part of our life and and that we should ignore, you know, you we that you don't talk about religion or politics is the mm. kind of old fashioned kind of side of things. But yeah, like you said, politics is is our lives. Like, it, yeah. it, it, well, at least it affects our lives. And mm. really, most people don't get into it or interested in it until they are directly shown that it's affecting their life. If you're, you know, if you're on a benefit and it's getting cut because a certain administration has gone into government or, you know, a party is, has taken more power than another party and they're, they're pulling things through. The change is real. It it does have an everyday effect on everyone. And it's going, and even though a teenager can't vote until they're 18, it doesn't mean that politics aren't affecting them. And actually the climate Sorry. yeah yep. po-
1: politics politics affect every everybody um politics, of, the poli- about politics the politics of today affect future generations that are yet to be born and particularly when you think about things like climate but also when you think about things like wealth inequality because we know that that compounds through generations yeah but it's also the case that you know when you talk about it, we're now um building up the uh, language to talk about the likes of child poverty which Mm. I push back against a little bit because I think that the reason that we've decided to go down the track of talking about child poverty is because we're so unwilling to talk about family poverty because we consistently bring out this idea of blame particularly towards poorest New Zealanders but that aside um, we've begun to understand how our day-to-day politics and decisions can impact kids who can't vote so that as a lens is thankfully, finally, one of the things that we're now considering as we pass legislation, there has to be a, a kind of critique or an evaluation laid over decisions about how this is gonna impact uh, kids of today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in, you know, further on from that, you know, they, they are focusing on, it is focusing on child poverty because I think people, are more empathetic towards the idea of a child being a victim versus I think a lot of people have the narrative or the the storyline in their head that adults make decisions and that your decisions have. But I think that that viewpoint comes from entitlement. (laughs) It comes from privilege, often white privilege, because the Mm. idea that you don't understand someone else's experience of life may be completely different to yours because of how you grew up from complete luck Mm. Um, is just not, you know, it, it is just not understanding that and I think the more that yeah. we start to talk about that, that would be, that'd be totally. wonderful. and I
1: think, I think in even the broader conversation about mental health, that way of thinking or that story or narrative is starting to fall apart as well because it just doesn't hold water. You know, if you look at yeah. the Mental Health and Addiction Inquiry uh, that the Government Commission the last term of Parliament, so it was released about a year ago, Uh, It says, basically, everybody is born with genes in them that can predispose, that is, make them more or less likely towards uh, manifesting, that is, you know, showing a mental um, ill health kind of situation in their life. But your environment and different environmental variables are things like poverty, things like, you know, a sense of connection to your family and to your broader community, a sense of security, a sense of uh, belief in yourself and in your future, uh, and meaning and uh, contribution and all of those things can either turn up or turn down the dial on whether this mental ill health shows itself or, you know, um, doesn't. Yeah, and, whether it gets triggered or not. Know, and and that's the thing, that that environmental, the, the the understanding of those environmental factors are what are known in other areas of policy as basically public health. Mm-hmm. And we see that now starting to play out in the way that we are talking about how, you know, certain people are more or less likely to manifest um, or you know showcase or as a result of their environmental factors, uh, you know, end up with the likes of diabetes or cancers or any number of other um, ailments. And we can actually figure out ways to help support people so that they don't have to be forced into making really hard choices. Because sure, you can argue that people have the choice to do X or do Y, but... You know, when it's the case that you don't actually have all too much room to move in there or you're exhausted from working an 80-hour week for minimum wage to support your whanau, um, it doesn't really feel like a choice anymore to go get fast food because that's all you can afford
0: and that's all the time you've got. Exactly. The idea of choice, I actually just had this like full-on discussion with someone the other day, that the idea of choice is about like your whole world around you. And choice changes. The mm. idea of what a choice is yeah. is completely different because <laughs> you can say it's a choice, everything's a choice, but there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely situations and environments in which you are brought up in or you're just in in your life that make it so that that so-called choice is not really, it's, it, it's, it's not that anymore. Yeah. It's, it, it's really yeah. just... Yeah, I find it very frustrating when I hear people talking about well, it was their choice. We we. we you
1: should come sit in Parliament for a bit and just hear people yelling about how poverty isn't real and there's a problem. I know. No, you know what? I, I've
0: <laughs> already I've already had those con- those conversations those uh, <laughs> discussions myself. Honestly, I've seen you debating, particularly when um you were, uh when you were doing the debates about um legislation around drug uh, around marijuana mm. and <laughs> I had to turn it off a couple of times because I was getting so angry about how it wasn't a conversation like I mean we do debate in high school and we're taught that you you have, mm. it has to be a rebuttal it has to be a response to what the other person has said and in order to do that you have to actually listen to the damn person you have to actually have listened to them. But it feels like, and it's felt like for a long time in politics, often they ignore the question completely and just say what they wanted to say because they want they have their speaking points. And I think that's why it's been refreshing mm. to see more and more people um, coming through, like you, who, who don't do that, who are actually trying to to speak to what that person just said, even if I don't even know how you have a conversation with someone where they're essentially talking like they're on a different planet it doesn't (laughs) I just it's so frustrating to hear and I think that's why a lot of people don't watch like parliament videos and stuff you know like because it feels like a lot of people just yelling at each other not listening and we can like we can have a lot of us have that at home when we're growing up and yeah it's like it doesn't feel profitable or Um, Not that it it doesn't have its place, it needs to happen, debates Mm. are important, Um, but I think the systems around them, and I guess who's speaking, really matters. Mm. Um, I think there's
1: a it's, it's that there's a difference between an actual debate or dialogue for a more constructive term and yeah. a, a kind of monologue. <laughs> so yeah. a dialogue is a dialogue is two ways. Um, a dialogue is recognition of the fact that there are two parties or two people and um, or two groups as part of. Uh, exchanging of ideas and trying to pull them apart and put them back together mm-hmm. in a environment like our so-called adversarial parliamentary system which is a colonial Westminster construct so you know it, it wasn't born here um, right. very much came here uh, and it uh, is all about you know if you even think of the shape of our parliamentary chamber that you shape it literally is the case that the uh, leader of the opposition and the prime minister sit historically two swords length apart. So it's built on the idea of fighting. Yeah. And when you, when you have that as the starting point, the starting concept that uh, your kind of discussion chamber is you know, operating from, then all of a sudden you have a rule book which basically says when you're in power, you wield that against people. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to engage with others because it's the show of might and the show of force, which is why I think, and you know, uh, thinking about how this culture has evolved to get to where it is today with you know, the saturation of media that you're talking about, and particularly the high metabolic turnover, just how much news is always being produced and how, you know, there's this weird interest in all of these politicians' personal lives and there's this Mm. kind of faux-celebritization as well and how that, you know, kind of becomes quite grotty because I find it really problematic when politicians are put on pedestals because in the same way that I was talking about history you know everybody is capable of making really Daft mistakes. Of course. And it's also the case that you don't know everything about all of the politicians' views or whatever else. So we can celebrate the fact that we're all moving together, but also often a politician is only ever able to try and do this thing because of the work of people who came decades beforehand or have been fighting for ages and ages as a group or as a community. So yeah, in our parliamentary chamber, it's often just people standing up and talking into the ether and it's it's not a, a way to actually build towards greater collaboration. And that's why you know, I think that greater conversations about constitutional reform that is like, what is the basis of what we're trying to achieve through representative democracy in this country? Because we are one of only three countries in the entire world that don't have a supreme, codified constitution that is a constitution that you can find in one place and that citizens can use to enforce against the government of the day. So we're one of the three countries in the entire world that don't have that. And that opens up some real problems where, you know, a lot of people when I say that this is something that we need will say, oh, well, it's actually really good that we've got a flexible parliament that can produce laws really quickly when things are needed to change. And sure, you could argue that that's great, and that's what enabled us to have our COVID response. Mm. But the flip side of that coin is that I think you can do those things with those safeguards in place for the rights of New Zealanders. And when it is wielded poorly, we end up with situations like we did uh, about 10 years ago, where the former national government under urgency passed a piece of legislation to, uh, effectively undermine and reverse a supreme court decision that said that the government of the day could not uh, discriminate against uh, family members of people with disabilities if they were caring for them because the government would pay people to come in from the outside but not those disability family carers. So there's there's a number of different things to unpack in that but long story short I think that um, the, the best way that we can facilitate more political engagement and more kind of community engagement as well, because that's what politics is supposed to be, yeah. uh, the, the best way to do that is to, to break down those barriers and to stop it being this big mauling fight where people are trying to shout each other down, but in fact, are trying to understand each other.
0: Yeah, and also making it feel like MPs are actually our representatives. There has been a change in America as well um, where more people have been. I mean, obviously, they had a huge catalyst for wanting mm. change because it's just come to a crazy hit over there. But um, seeing more people who were just, you know, who are just normal people um, who wanted to, to see change. And sometimes you have to be the leader that you want to see. Sometimes someone else isn't willing to stand up. And sometimes it's worth, you know, getting up and doing it yourself, um, you know, if it, and I think in terms of like trying to translate that to, you know, a high school environment um, when you're younger, I think that it, it means like maybe, you know, if there isn't a club, like a support club for people who care about the same stuff you do, um, maybe it's time to, to make it yourself. And B, you know, and it's really scary. I totally understand how scary it is because it's scary doing a podcast when you're like (laughs) by yourself and doing it all yourself um, and you're aware that you're going to get backlash. Um, But starting something and you might find other people, you're more likely than not, I think, to find other people even in other schools who might care about those things too. Um, How do you know if it's puppy love or real love? (laughs) Um, I, okay,
1: so I was actually having this debate with some friends the other day, uh, where they were trying to tell me that love is complicated. Mm-hmm. I, uh, have, uh, you know, I, I, one of my degrees is in, uh, philosophy, so I oh, cool. take a very, um, kind of philosophical and kind of first principles approach to, to everything, which is valuable when it's in politics and trying to discuss ideas and stuff, but, mm-hmm. I think that you know looking through those lens of cultural values and uh, how different you know life experiences and people express themselves and perspectives and all these different things I think that we make the concept of love complicated and you can you know understand that when you think of love as this concept that's out there and all of us interact with it differently and it's therefore our relationship with the concept of love as opposed to love that's complicated sure. so I um, think that love comes in a lot of different forms, and one of the things that I've really focused on, uh, particularly in my 20s, uh, is being really intentional about platonic love in my life, so loving my friends and being quite, you know, open about the fact that I actually do love and adore them, Mm -hmm. Um, and how, you know, that is not something that is, is sexual, nor does it need to be, and how, yeah, that love can manifest in a lot of different ways, so i think that you know puppy love at least how i understand it is kind of this uh, adoring fawning you're going to do anything for that person uh, is is one relationship to love and that can still be something which ultimately is real love but it, yeah. again it's a relationship in a way that you're perceiving or engaging with or relating to that love so um, real love per se is often what we think of as enduring. So um, yeah, again, I just think that that is when you have a more healthy relationship, uh, not, I mean, definitely with the person or people who you are in relationship or relationships with, but also with yourself Um yeah. all of those platitudes. And this is something I've been talking to my therapist a lot about recently. <laughs> Clichés
0: are cliche for a reason, yeah. right? Like they, sure.
1: oftentimes they, they hold water. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think the concept of real love to me is yeah. not not a not something that anyone should really throw much at. Mm. Um, I think that I think love can change. I think the difference here between puppy love and what is considered real love is generally that it's reciprocated, so that like yeah. feel in love. Because I do think that's a different thing. The thing I felt when I was younger when I didn't. When I thought I was when I was in love with someone was was very obsessive not very realistic and not really looking at the person for who they were it was mm. kind of just a lot of my emotions and hormones being thrown at the person it felt very real projecting.
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah. and it felt very real and I think it is real I don't think it's not real I think the idea that you was saying real love is enduring I think mm. there's lots of conversations to be had about whether a, if this is a Dan savage quote but whether a relationship ends and one of you dying makes it a success, mm. I don't think that that's, for me anyway, mm. I don't think that's an accurate representation of what real love or a, or a good relationship is, mm. I think. I also don't yeah. think, you know, when, you, when, when we
1: talk about relationships um, and how that's associated to love, you know, like yeah. I have, uh, to give you a very, very tangible personal example, like my ex and I broke up a few years ago we were together for six years yeah uh, and I loved him dearly I still love him but we're friends now it's a different it's a different way of relating to that love but it's still a very deep love and that doesn't mean the relationship is in there but I also think that you know, we end up in quite heteronormative, uh, monogamous, and therefore quite colonial ideas yeah. of what love is when we get down that road of what real love is, and that also cuts us off to, uh, you know, the the real manifestations of love for like pets or know. Um, you know yes. the the land and your environment yeah. and. Uh, like the ocean or things that you perceive to be, you know, um, just In your culture. objects that you've poured your heart and soul into, whether that's art or music or, yeah, there's, there's so many different ways to, to express love and to,
0: to relate to love. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a very good answer. Uh, how do you tell people you are not straight? <laughs> <laughs> that's hard. I don't think you have to. Yeah, uh, it depends on the context. Exactly, and I think it, um, yeah, it does, and it depends on whether you are in a safe environment. Some people mm. can't say that they're not straight. I'm going to say queer because I feel like mm. that encompasses it better um, instead of saying not something because yeah. um, that's normalising it anyway. Encourage more people to come out as straight. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> yes. yes.
0: <laughs> but you know what? I remember seeing something where um, this guy had two gay parents, two um, mm. fathers, and he he felt he had to come out to them as straight, he, like, felt a genuine sense, and he, and they were like, yeah, no, it's fine, like, you don't have to, <laughs> he, he felt like he needed to, so it's it's interesting, but yeah, you're absolutely right, um, I mean, I came out as bi because of reading a thing about how it's important, even if mm. you pass as, pass as straight, um, to come out, I, th- that it's really important because it changes people's perceptions of what, how people are, and that they're mm. not just one thing, and that it's fluid. And I think that's coming more, becoming more and more of a thing where people are understanding starting to understand that sexuality isn't necessarily I'm this or this my entire yeah. life. It can change. How you feel about people will change. You might just fall in love with someone, and it happens that they're the same sex as you. Like it, mm. it's not. You don't have to make a decision. Like I'm a vegan, and like people seem to feel like then there's this need to kind of say that i have made a decision and it's a commitment and there's no way i would ever be allowed to eat meat again well actually it's my decision i made it so i can unmake it i can make any decision i'd like this is my life yeah so yeah it's the same thing with the love stuff there's so many rules that we're told about and how we're supposed to like live our lives and it's Mm. total bullshit. it's Mm. not true and it Mm. took me far too long to realize so (laughs) That's my yeah. answer to that, but yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I, I
1: definitely, um, I, I struggled because, you know, I think that nobody is defined by one element of who they are, but we definitely can really love certain parts about of who we are more than others, and that's also yeah. totally fine and valid. Um, I, you know, have been in love with men and been in love with women. Mm-hmm. And I think I could be in love with any given person dependent yeah. on whatever attributes they had. And, you know, yeah. again, like I love all of my friends as well. So yeah. I, um, my approach to it was being really conscious of, particularly as uh, somebody who has a public profile, I, um, you know, in being really open about my past with regard to mental ill health and a few other things, it felt like my life was this platter from which I could be completely oversimplified as a character with, uh, if people decided to pick up any one of those demographic points or experiences to extrapolate or completely pigeonhole me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, for a very long time, was just kind of like, no one needs to necessarily know about my sexuality, but, uh, and nobody asked when I was with a dude. But, I
0: know, you, know, you know,
1: know, a few months into dating a woman, um, I was asked by a journalist and it was on the front page of the paper. And like I had always, people. yeah, I, I, I'd always kind of taken this approach that um, I'm never going to apologize and I'm always going to be upfront when somebody asks. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's just kind of, it just it just is. And I had a conversation with, um, a member of parliament in uh, the UK actually she's from Scotland but you know there's a lot of historical stuff playing out there for the SNP yeah. Maori, uh, who had a really similar situation by out for her and I was asking for some advice because we're actually both also the same age and she was just like um, you know don't have to come out the closet if you've never been in it just exist exactly. basically so that's what I've always tried to do and when people ask I'm like yep and when people ask from a point of attempting to uh, project some form of discrimination or bias or whatever, it's kind of like that's with you buddy. Um, yeah. you know? And I, I guess that that's another way of sitting in your power and that's also the point of pride you know. Um, so yeah there, there's a lot there's a lot of different ways to do it and to relate to it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I do think that the, as things are going, I think that the closet was more of a protection um, yeah. for people. Um, because they felt, well, they they were uh, in danger and I don't think that that's necessarily the case for everyone anymore. So I don't think it's going to necessarily exist for anyone anymore, I think. Mm. Yeah, there's no closet if you don't create it. So yeah,
1: yeah, but, uh, and that's that's also the importance of solidarity moving forward. Eh? Like course. particularly with um, other, you know, more marginalized gender identities, making sure that there is that space and and yeah, continuing to push and normalize that conversation and using yeah. our privilege for lack of a better term. Yeah, we are and we do have that love if not of you know our family or our communities or whatever else we can you know have it with each other and that you know again can be entirely platonic or it cannot whatever yeah. people feel comfortable with and consent to
0: agreed that's an amazing place to finish please like and subscribe to this video if you'd like to be notified when a new episode goes live